Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the canal murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are close to 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 18, Evelyn Derricott. It was 2011. On Friday, October 7th, around 11.15 a.m., a woman named Lori knocked on the door of her elderly friend's home. Evelyn Derricott, who was 69, lived alone in Tooele, Utah, about 35 miles outside Salt Lake City. Lori, who was helping Evelyn clean out her house, had not been able to get Evelyn on the phone since Tuesday. She had come by the house and found a note on the front door from someone named Maxine asking Evelyn to call her. Clearly, Evelyn had not seen the note. Lori received no answer to her knock on the door, so she used the key that Evelyn had given her. She inserted the key and the lock disengaged. But when Lori tried to open the door, something on the inside obstructed it. She could only push it a little bit ajar. Peering through the crack in the door, she gasped. Her friend Evelyn was lying prone at the bottom of the stairs just inside the doorway. She was motionless. Lori called the Tuella police at 11.19 a.m. The 911 call sounds frantic. She says, I've come to help check on a lady. I don't know if she's dead. I need help fast. When the dispatcher asked if the woman was breathing, the caller said, I can't even open the door. She's collapsed at the bottom of the stairs. Officer Sean McKinnon and Sergeant Brian White responded to 410 Havasu Drive. The home was an older split level, so that the front door opened onto a landing leading to a short staircase up to the upper level and also to a short staircase down to the living area. The officers found the keys used by Lori still dangling from the lock. They could open the door enough to see the victim lying partially on the linoleum landing and partially on the carpeted stairs to the upper level, her foot and leg blocking the door opening. Once they got in and checked on the woman lying in a fetal position, they got a shock. Evelyn had not fallen down or suffered some kind of disastrous health episode as often happens with senior citizens. She was dead, and close inspection showed that Evelyn had been beaten to death with a blunt object. Drops of dried blood were on the wall near the body. It was very quickly apparent that this was a homicide and that the victim, who was cold and stiff, had been dead for some time. The officers canceled the paramedic call and set to work. Evelyn Karen Williams was born on December 17, 1941, to parents Otis and Wilma Williams. She was a longtime resident of Tooele and had married her husband, Brent Derricott, in June 1970. The couple had two daughters, Candace and Kathleen. Evelyn worked for over 20 years as a transportation officer at the Dugway Proving Grounds, a military testing facility. Sadly, Brent died in 1997, but Evelyn carried on, not retiring until 2009. According to her obituary, her five grandkids and her cats were the highlights of her life. She raised Persian cats and loved to crochet Afghan blankets, read, and visit with a small group of friends. 
Her daughters described her to the Salt Lake Tribune as someone who was a fun-loving, helpful, supportive parent and then grandparent. She was active and busy as well. Neighbor Amy Carell told the Salt Lake Tribune that Evelyn was very energetic for her age and was as perky as a teenager. She loved it when her daughter's class of elementary students would sing happy birthday to her. She volunteered at domestic violence shelters and enjoyed helping people. She led the simple yet fulfilling life of a comfortable elderly retiree. And her daughter said that she was very private and cautious and would never have allowed anyone she did not know well into her home. If she needed repairs or something moved, she would generally wait until her family came to visit rather than hiring someone or using a service. It made the list of suspects even smaller. Evelyn's daughters Kathleen and Candace lived in Vernal. Kathleen said that she was at her husband's workplace when the call came into his office from the police. They needed to come to her mother's hometown right away. In shock, Kathleen headed to Tuella when there met her sister Candace at the police station. The sisters were not initially allowed into their mother's home, which was now a crime scene. The scene at Evelyn's home was processed with her body in place as crime scene techs gathered evidence on and around the body, bagged her hands and feet, and so on. The medical examiner, Judd Erickson, arrived on scene at 12.18 p.m. Evelyn was removed and sent to the ME's facility in Salt Lake at 2.11 p.m. It was not clear to investigators how long Evelyn had been deceased. Their inquiries revealed that she had not been seen since the previous weekend nearly a week earlier. Early law enforcement statements about the murder were confusing. Lieutenant Paul Wimmer of the Tuella PD said, quoted in the Salt Lake Tribune, The friend didn't realize when she called police that Derricott had been killed. Lori, the friend, thought there had been some kind of accident. But police said that Evelyn's case was being investigated as a homicide. They would not release the cause of death or state whether the body exhibited obvious signs of trauma or even say why they were certain Evelyn was a victim of homicide but the contents of the autopsy report were revealed much later. The autopsy was performed by Dr. Edward Lells on October 8th. When it arrived on his table, the body of the elderly woman was clad in gray sweatpants, a red shirt, and a green hoodie. Dr. Lells determined that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and neck caused by 14 blows from a weighty implement. Shaving Evelyn's head and removing the scalp at autopsy revealed multiple skull fractures from the blows to the back of her head. Her skull was described as cracked open from the base to the top. There was no evidence that Evelyn had fought back against her attacker. This led police to formulate the theory that she had been surprised by someone who had hit her on the head and incapacitated her before she realized what was happening. She fell to the floor, and the killer finished her off there in a case of overkill. Thankfully, Evelyn had not been sexually assaulted. At least her family could take some small comfort in that. Police processed the home for several days. This was a somewhat complicated process because Evelyn was a bit of a collector. Her house was disorganized and full of clutter. She had been working with Lori's help to clean it up a bit. Of course, the crime scene text dusted for prints and fingerprinted Evelyn's daughters, their husbands, and Lori for comparison. They took photos of everything and checked the safe and the garbage cans. Detective Brad Young noted that there were marks on the outside of the man door leading into the garage, and the door was not in the door track. He removed the garage door handle and placed it into evidence. Police said right off the bat that they believed Evelyn's death was a home invasion gone wrong, but it wasn't clear right away why they drew this conclusion. Lieutenant Wimmer made some statements to the effect that there was no sign of forced entry to Evelyn's home. He just said that there were some, quote, real suspicious elements to the scene. It turned out that what police had found was the sliding door leading to the kitchen from the back of the house was unlocked. This was the way they believed the intruder entered the home. They believed that he had also jimmied open the man door leading into the garage, which was not accessible from inside the house. According to the police report, several shoe prints were found on a ladder in the garage, they were lifted using a gel lift pad and determined to have come from a quite small pair of shoes. It was also noted that a five-foot-high pile of boxes and storage items between the man door into the garage and the small car park area appeared as though some of the storage items had been knocked over. At 2.43 p.m. on the day Evelyn was found, detectives requested that Evelyn's friend Lori walk them through the home to try to determine whether anything was missing or out of place. 
Lieutenant Wimmer, updating the media, reported that there didn't appear to be anything missing. But in the next breath, he said there was something missing, something big. Evelyn's car was not in the garage where she kept it. Police checked all the towing operations and garages in the area, and finding no evidence of the car listed it stolen. They asked the public to be on the lookout for Evelyn's 1993 teal green Pontiac Grand Am SE, which had some damage to its rear bumper. They don't make Pontiacs anymore, but my grandparents had this same car. It was actually kind of sporty. Anyway, investigators suspected that the suspect had driven off in the vehicle, Utah plate number 248ZWJ. Lieutenant Wimmer said, quote, We believe this is an element of this crime that is directly linked to this homicide. This doesn't seem like the smartest move for the suspect to make, driving off in a vehicle stolen from the home where he had just murdered the homeowner. Cars are easy to trace and hard to dispose of. This is why the police put out the bolo. They also checked surveillance footage from the gas stations near Evelyn's home after learning from her daughters that she tended not to leave a lot of gas in her car. It was thought that the suspect might have had to gas up before leaving town, but they found no sign of her car on any of the footage. Police weren't sure what the motive for the slaying was, since the house did not appear to be ransacked and valuables were found inside. Yet, police stated that they believed Evelyn was targeted. Perhaps someone had been casing her home, knowing that she was elderly, alone and vulnerable, and when they made their move to rob her, things had just gone awry. Or perhaps the suspect knew that Evelyn had left the house that morning, overestimated the amount of time she would be gone, and had been interrupted. Neighborhood surveillance video footage revealed nothing. And investigators were left scratching their heads because their usual interviews with family and neighbors failed to reveal anything suspicious or concerning about Evelyn's life. She didn't have enemies, there was no drama, there were no secrets. She was an elderly woman enjoying her golden years, and what you saw was what you got. Her daughter Carolyn told the Salt Lake Tribune, quote, This is so hard for us to wrap our mind around. We can't think of why anyone would want to do this. As Lieutenant Wimmer dryly put it, quote, Whoever would prey on her is not a very nice person. Tuila, where Evelyn lived, was a safe, small city of about 35,000. Many of the residents were working-class people who commuted into nearby Salt Lake. Evelyn's murder, although occurring in late 2011, was Tuila's first murder that year. In fact, police officials told KSL.com that Evelyn's murder was, quote, one of the most significant crimes committed in Tuella in more than a decade, and it's on the forefront of every officer's mind. Neighbors verified to the media what police already knew. Evelyn's neighborhood was generally very safe and quiet, until now. It turned out that besides Evelyn's car, there were some other things missing from her home. Her daughters noticed that her purse and cell phone were nowhere to be found. Calls to her phone went unanswered. Police got a warrant to require the phone's service provider to locate the phone, and lo and behold, it was still on, and it pinged in the town of Kearns, in the area near the Olympic Skating Oval. This was in a residential area, and police search teams descended on it. And pretty quickly they found something. Not the phone, but Evelyn's car. It was parked in a neighborhood in Kearns on Ridge Hollow Way near Impressions Drive. This is a nice, neat, normal residential neighborhood with modest but well-cared-for homes and kids running around. Not at all a typical place where car thieves would dump a stolen vehicle. Yet there was Evelyn's stolen car abandoned on a residential street with kids playing all around it. Police sealed the vehicle and removed it for processing. They would not say whether they were able to obtain any evidence from the crime lab's analysis of the Grand Am, although later it would turn out that they had. All they would say was that they had found some small shoe prints in the dirt around the car and on its hood. These were approximately the same small size as the ones lifted from the ladder in the garage, and the shoe tread matched. The car's driver's seat was positioned all the way up very close to the steering wheel. Detectives surmised perhaps they were looking for a juvenile they started pulling juvenile records in the area to look for similar crimes. Canvases of the neighbors in the area where the car was found weren't really helpful. Several witnesses reported that they had seen the car there over the previous week, but no one was certain when it had first appeared. Based on conflicting witness statements, investigators drew the conclusion that it was possible the suspect had driven the car in and out of the neighborhood more than once over the days before it was found. Of course, this would lead to the inference that the suspect either lived in or had some connection to the Kearns area. 
but they were unable to find anything concrete. But then, five days after the car was found, there was another big break. On Wednesday, investigators were conducting another search of the neighborhood where the car was found. They knew, based on the phone pings, that the phone had to be there somewhere. With officers on the ground, they would occasionally call the phone, not wanting to drain the battery and have the phone lose power, but very eager to locate it. They hoped that the grid-searching officers might hear the ringtone and be able to spot the device. And that is what happened. An officer called the phone, and the ringing sounded from under a small bush near the sidewalk. This was close to the corner of Stoneflower Way and Ridge Brookway, about a block away from the vehicle's location. It was Evelyn's cell phone, the one that had pinged in the area and led them to the car. Lieutenant Wimmer told KSL.com, quote, We suspect whoever was in the car parked the car, got out of the car, and was on foot at the point of disposing of the phone. And Wimmer also confirmed that because the suspect took Evelyn's car when he left, police believed that he had arrived in her neighborhood on foot or had been dropped off. He told the Tuella Transcript Bulletin, which did a great job covering this case, that while statistically it was more probable that the suspect was local, police were not ruling out the possibility that someone from Kearns came to Tuella for some reason unknown, killed Evelyn, and returned to Kearns in her car. Wimmer said, quote, We really struggled whether it was someone who was in the area for whatever reason and was actually from Kearns, or if they were someone who committed a heinous crime and took off and that's where they ended up, in Kearns, to make a phone call or get their thoughts together or get a ride back. It's just difficult to really know what their mindset was or to determine where this person is from or where they were going. Tuella police submitted some unspecified items to the Utah State Crime Lab for analysis. By March 2012, five months after the murder, Chief Deputy Tuella County Attorney Gary Searle told the Tribune that police were continuing to follow up on leads while they waited for results on more than 10 items being tested at the crime lab for DNA and fingerprints. Searle confirmed that two of these items were the cell phone and the vehicle. Evelyn's purse was never found. Let's talk about the phone. Now that they had it, police were hopeful that information on the phone, whether regarding Evelyn's contacts and conversations or tracking information, or the suspect's fingerprints, would provide them with some leads. Per the Salt Lake Tribune, quote, Police also sent Derricott's phone to the Utah State Crime Lab to look for fingerprints, phone contacts, and recently called numbers, but that avenue did not lead police anywhere, Lieutenant Paul Wimmer said. The phone was a dead end. Meanwhile, testing continued on the steering wheel of Evelyn's car, which had been detached and sent to the crime lab for analysis. As the investigation proceeded, police received support for their theory of a home invasion gone wrong. They were able to determine that on the morning of her death, Evelyn had been running errands. She returned home and removed her shoes. She had been found wearing slippers. To this day, it is still not known for sure whether Evelyn returned home and surprised the burglar, who had entered through the rear sliding glass door onto the upper level of the home, or whether she was downstairs tending to something when he came in and they had their fateful meeting on the stair landing. Lieutenant Wimmer stated, quote, I think most of us have come to believe it was an interrupted burglary. We believe she came home at a time she was being burglarized. The burglar killed her because she had discovered the crime in progress, and he felt that was going to be the best way to keep her quiet. As I said, we really don't know which scenario was the case. One would think that a would-be burglar would not enter a house if he knew the resident to be at home, but you never know. Sometimes the homeowner being present is not a deterrent for a burglar, especially if it is a helpless old lady. Anyway, one thing detectives were sure of is what happened after the murder. Evelyn had a key rack near the front door where her daughters told police she kept her car and house keys. They were missing and Evelyn would only access her car from outside the garage by using her handheld remote control to open the overhead garage door. She did not use the man door into the garage because access to the car was blocked by the five-foot-high pile of stuff between the door and the car. The overhead garage door clicker was found on the floor near Evelyn's body. It was almost certainly completely unnoticed or unrecognized by the killer. Detectives came to believe that the murderer killed Evelyn, grabbed her car keys, intending to make his escape in her car, and then had to jimmy open the garage man door and use the ladder leaning against the garage wall inside the door to mount the pile of storage items between him and the car, knocking some of them over in the process. 
In doing so, he stepped on the vehicle's hood, leaving some shoe prints. He opened the overhead door by pulling the release cord dangling over the car, started the vehicle, backed it out, and then jumped out and closed the door manually, pulling it back down while he was outside it. Then he adjusted the seat in the car and drove off, and no one was the wiser. But all of this detailed understanding of what had gone down still did not give police what they wanted, a suspect. No one in the neighborhood had noted anything unusual. Evelyn's car leaving her home had not attracted any notice. Lieutenant Wimmer told KSL.com, quote, It's frustrating because right now we're looking at a broad spectrum of possible suspects. The investigation began to slow. Ten months after Evelyn's murder, her daughter Kathleen Gardner told the Tribune that thoughts of what her mother went through still made her very emotional. She said, quote, It is like a bad dream that I still have to wake up from. You go from talking to her every day on the phone to nothing. Evelyn's daughter Candace Slaw told KSL.com, quote, One thing is, I worry that he's still out there. They haven't caught him. Is somebody going to be next? Is it somebody else's mom or grandmother? It was a very good question. In August 2012, police spent some time handing out flyers about the case in Evelyn's neighborhood, hoping to generate some more leads. And at this event, Lieutenant Wimmer told the Tribune that they did have some crucial evidence that had not been revealed before. They had found DNA at the crime scene that did not belong to Evelyn. In fact, it was DNA from a male individual. And it had been found on a Stanley hammer located at the murder scene. It turned out that crime scene techs processing Evelyn's house had collected a bloody hammer that was almost certainly the murder weapon. The hammer was found lying on the carpeted landing at the top of the stairs. Officer Jason Spencer noted minor amounts of blood on the head of the hammer, and this is what caused them to take a closer look at the victim lying on the floor. Evelyn's daughters identified the hammer as one owned by their mother, kept in a toolbox that was found right at the top of the stairs near Evelyn's body. The murder weapon coming from inside the house contributed to the police belief that Evelyn's death was a result of a burglary gone wrong. She had surprised the intruder, he grabbed whatever weapon was available, and he bludgeoned her with it. Comparison of the hammer to the 14 impact wounds on Evelyn's head confirmed that it was the murder weapon. Testing on the hammerhead, the part that had caused the wounds, revealed Evelyn's DNA on it. But someone else's DNA was also on the hammer. The Department of Public Safety Crime Lab had been able to isolate a male DNA profile from the hammer handle. Of course, this was big. It meant that a man had killed Evelyn and they were in possession of biological material he had left behind. But just because the investigators had a DNA profile of their killer did not mean they knew who he was. Searches of the profile led to no hits in CODIS and did not match anyone police had looked at in connection with their investigation. Investigators were surprised the perp wasn't in CODIS considering the brutality of the crime, but it appeared that he had never left his DNA at the scene of any other violent offense. By the third anniversary of the murder in 2014, the case had stalled. Police continued to work it, following up on leads and pursuing theories. They had made some headway. For example, they now had information that led them to believe that the murder had happened on the morning of October 5th, a Wednesday, between 8 a.m. and noon. And crime lab analysts were able to determine that the DNA of the male collected from the hammer matched male DNA found on the steering wheel of Evelyn's car. It was not a surprise to anyone, really, but it was confirmation that the suspect had driven Evelyn's car from her home when he left after killing her that day. Now they had his DNA profile in two locations, but not in the one that mattered most, the CODIS database. Investigators started to use the DNA profile they had obtained from the hammer and the steering wheel to compare to a few persons of interest in the case to try to rule them in or out. They also swept in known area burglars, car thieves, and parolees who had committed similar crimes and so on. Lieutenant Wimmer told the media that every time a suspect was arrested for burglary in the area, they made sure to compare his DNA. They tested three employees of a yard maintenance company that Evelyn had briefly used, and they even tested the guy who had installed her direct TV six months earlier. They continued to check the databases for DNA matches as well, with no luck. In October 2014, Tuella investigators issued a news release asking for the public's help to spark renewed interest in the case and perhaps generate some leads. Lieutenant Wimmer almost begged for information. 
He said, quote, this is an open investigation. It's our most troubling unsolved crime, and it's one we're very interested in anything that may lead to the discovery of her killer. Meanwhile, by October 2014, more than three years after Evelyn's death, stuff was going on behind the scenes. Sergeant Chris Thompson, a detective on the Tuella Police Force, had attended a conference on ballistics forensics, and there he chatted with a buddy who worked for the state crime lab. The crime lab had tested all the evidentiary items in the Derricotte case, and also had run all the DNA comparisons, so they were quite involved in the case and knew that it remained unsolved. The crime lab guy suggested a new technique might work to generate an investigative lead. Sergeant Thompson submitted the case for consideration and met with prosecutors from the Tuella County Attorney's Office and the Utah CODIS Administrator at the state's Bureau of Forensic Services to discuss this new tool. In 2016, there was big news in the Evelyn Derricott unsolved murder case. The biggest news possible, actually. The Tuella PD announced that they had arrested a suspect for the 2011 homicide of the 69-year-old grandmother of five. Police had gotten a name using familial DNA. Now, listeners know that this is a podcast that focuses on forensic genealogy. That's where genealogists take the profile of an unknown offender and enter it into a public DNA database to find others who have some of the same genetic markers. Based on the relationship between the unsub and the people distantly related to him in the database, they can use triangulation and the process of elimination to figure out who he might be, right? We've seen this 17 times now in all my previous episodes. The Derricotte case is different. The name of the suspect was revealed in 2016, before forensic genealogy was the common tool it is today. Golden State was still two years off. Instead of forensic genealogy being used, a slightly different tool called familial DNA was employed. I'm going to explain what this is and why it's controversial. Familial DNA searching, which also includes partial match DNA, is the process where law enforcement enters the unknown suspect's DNA profile into the database containing the DNA profiles of known offenders. These are criminal defendants, convicted criminals, or violent crime arrestees who have been required to give a DNA sample due to the nature of the crime they committed or are accused of. In the U.S., the database is CODIS. Investigators then run a search to see if any of the criminals in the database have a profile that contains genetic similarities to their unsub. Here's the technical definition from the Investigative Sciences Journal, quote, Familial DNA testing may be defined as a deliberate search of a DNA database conducted for the intended purpose of potentially identifying close biological relatives to the unknown forensic profile obtained from crime scene evidence. In other words, it's a CODIS search, but familial DNA does not require an exact match. It's looking for relatives of the suspect, someone who shares a material amount of the same DNA. A hit indicates that they are closely related, and now police have the name of a known criminal who is in the unsub's family, which can help narrow down the unsub's identity. By the way, this only works for males in the vast majority of these cases, and here's why. The profile of the killer developed from the DNA sample left at the crime scene uses STR analysis, which permits comparison of the genetic markers in two profiles to see if they are a match. The familial test is a Y-STR analysis, which looks for similar genetic profiles using the Y chromosome. According to the Tuello Transfer Bulletin article by Steve Howe, quote, The Y-STR analysis can prove a family connection because the Y-STR profile between paternally linked men is identical, so it's inherited directly from father to son. As a result, the test is specific enough that it pinpoints only close male relatives like sons, grandfathers, uncles, or cousins. Now, it is possible to perform a test looking for female relatives, but it would be a mitochondrial DNA test. This is much less common because, as Utah Crime Lab Director Henry told the Transfer Bulletin, quote, the bulk of our offenders are male, so you put your resources where you're going to get the most bang. Now, familial DNA searching is a very controversial method of crime solving. For privacy rights advocates, it potentially violates the constitutional right against unreasonable searches for the family members of those who have been required to give their DNA after committing a criminal offense. According to this school of thought, why should you be implicated in something just because your cousin is a rapist? It's guilt by association. 
Under this way of thinking, this method is different, although not completely, from forensic genealogy, in which you might be implicated by your third cousin doing 23andMe and voluntarily uploading his profile to GEDmatch. This is because the criminals and even some arrestees are being required by law enforcement authorities to give their DNA. It's not optional, and is potentially being used against their relatives who have been convicted of no crime. But there are many who oppose both familial DNA and forensic genealogy, believing that personal genetic information is private and should never be subjected to these types of analysis. On the other side of the coin are those who feel that the importance of law enforcement's ability to catch criminals is paramount, and running a familial search of a database looking for criminal relatives does not violate anyone's rights because, like forensic genealogy, it provides only a lead. Law enforcement still has to build a case against their suspect, and he still gets his day in court. Proponents of familial DNA see no problem with using the profiles of criminals to catch other potential criminals. Of course, it's not that black and white, and the use of familial DNA is not controlled by any national guidelines or standards as to how and when searches are conducted. Basically, it's up to the individual states. As of 2017, 11 states had enacted policies expressly permitting the use of this tool, and Utah is one of them. Other states may use it, but have not addressed it in their legislature or enacted explicit policies. Arizona was one of these as of 2018. Two jurisdictions have legislatively banned its use, Maryland and D.C. Some of the states that permit its use have expressed limitations on when it can be used. For example, California permits it, but only as a last resort and when it involves a major violent crime that poses a public safety risk. In any event, familial DNA searching is permitted in Utah, although at the time it was employed in the Derricot case, it was very, very new. In fact, this was only the second time it had been used and the first time it didn't work. Investigators flummoxed as to who could have killed Evelyn Derricot turned to familial DNA searching as a last resort. According to the Deseret News, Utah State Crime Lab Director Jay Henry said that this tool could be used as a last resort if all other leads, including direct searches in the state DNA database, have been exhausted, which they have. Utah procedural rules also require that a law enforcement agency seeking to use familial testing must obtain approval from its chief or sheriff and prosecutor and that a review board approve the familial search after ensuring that privacy concerns are addressed. That's a lot of jumping through hoops. In this case, the review board was made up of crime lab personnel, representatives from the DA's office, and the police investigators. Law enforcement personnel must be trained in how to apply the results of the testing so as to carefully preserve privacy rights. And familial DNA testing is also expensive, as it costs from $5,000 to $7,000 and could take months to complete. As you can tell, there are myriad reasons familial DNA searching is used sparingly. Crime Lab Director Henry cited a study with an interesting statistic. He said that about 46% of inmates also have a relative who is in the correction system. I'm not sure whether he meant in Utah or nationally. This seems like an outrageously high number. In the UK, which pioneered the use of familial DNA in 2002, in an eight-year span, familial DNA identified 41 perpetrators in 188 cases, a 22% success rate. If this is even close to a common result, then familial searching is very likely to yield results. And in Evelyn's case, it did. A press conference was held on Friday, May 6, 2016, announcing an arrest in the Evelyn Derikov case. Tuella City Police Chief Ron Kirby said his officers had arrested Rogelio Diaz Jr., age 23, in West Valley City around 7.30 that morning. Diaz was identified through a process of elimination after a familial DNA search of approximately 110,000 profiles collected in Utah and entered into CODIS was conducted. Utah had passed a piece of legislation signed by the governor into law in 2014 that mandated that certain offenders give a DNA sample upon their arrest. These are people arrested for felonies or Class A misdemeanors, as well as registered sex offenders. Once the arrestee has been through a probable cause hearing or an indictment, the sample is then processed and his profile entered into the database. And in the Derricot case, when they ran the unsub's profile through the database, the search gave them names. 
three men who were directly related to Evelyn's killer were in the Utah DNA database of known violent offenders. The Salt Lake Tribune explained the process as follows. A search of the Utah offender DNA database turned up a person who had the same family genetic markers as markers in the suspect's profile. The way the searches worked, requiring a very high level of similar DNA, means that the relationship between the unsub and the person in the database would have to be very close, a first or second degree relative. An arrest report from the Tuella Police Department states that, quote, the subject identified has a reasonable probability of being related to the contributor of the forensic unknown sample. But that was an understatement. The report goes on to quote the head of the CODIS administrator for Utah, saying that the level of similarity in the DNA between the person in CODIS and the unsub was, quote, best explained by a sibling relationship. A direct paternal relative would qualify as well. And here, the suspect's two brothers and father were all in the database. Now, instead of the suspect pool being all of Utah, it was narrowed down to one specific family. The police report I obtained focused on the hit generated by one of the unsub's brothers. I'm not going to name him. He has never been named publicly by Utah officials, but he is the suspect's brother and they shared the same last name. I'm going to use his first initial and call him J. Diaz. So investigators had the name J. Diaz and were told that the suspect was likely a sibling. And they also had the names of two other relatives, another brother and a father. So they had to go about constructing the family tree of Jay Diaz, his father, and his siblings to figure out who the suspect was who was not in the system. And this was not easy because there were some illegal immigrants in the family who had been deported and records were difficult to obtain. And it appeared that the suspect had at least three full siblings and possibly more. Investigators used traditional investigative techniques to determine which family member was their suspect. Notice that the methodology is no different from that used in forensic genealogy, which often points to a family that the suspect is related to, and then police have to take it from there. In this case, they did this via research of Utah state records, customs and immigration records, social media, and so on. They knew they were looking for a male who was small in stature, driving Evelyn's car with a seat forward and leaving small shoe prints nearby, and who also had ties to the area and was in the area at the time of the murder. The method is essentially a process of elimination, the same thing we've seen in the forensic genealogy cases. Detectives get the names of men who could be their suspects based on DNA markers, and they whittle down the list based on factors such as age, location, and so on. Here, once they had narrowed down the list of possible names, such as female relatives like the suspect's mother Maria and his sisters, they went on to eliminate some male family members who were out of the country when the crime was committed, or whose DNA was in CODIS and was not a match to the unsubs. This included the suspect's father. Diaz Sr. was in CODIS as well, but his DNA was not an exact match to the Derricott case DNA, so they knew he was not their suspect. Same for Jay Diaz and the other brother who was in the system. And in the end, they were left with one name, Rogelio Diaz Jr. Diaz fit the bill in several ways. He was 18 years old at the time Evelyn was killed, an adult but still young enough to commit the impulsive seeming murder. According to the arrest report, Diaz was listed as living at an address in Tuella in 2011 and also living in Kearns in 2011. Not only that, Evelyn's car was found 0.23 miles from the Kearns address Diaz was using, and the cell phone was found just five houses away. Further, Diaz was under five feet tall and wore a size six shoe, just as investigators had determined the perpetrator was a below average size. Police Chief Ron Kirby said at the press conference, quote, We found those connections and put him at the right place at the right time. This whole process of working out the family tree and tracking down family members took over a year. During one information gathering session in early 2015, a detective Jacobson went to the home of one of the Diaz siblings, a daughter. He noted that her brother, Rogelio Diaz Jr., was living with her and in fact was sitting on the sofa while he spoke with her. But it took a lot more time before detectives had narrowed down the list of Diaz family members who could be their killer to just that one name. And even then, once detectives had Diaz's name as a likely suspect, they had to confirm it. And since they didn't have probable cause to arrest him based on the familial DNA report alone, they needed to obtain a sample of his DNA. Detectives started staking out Diaz to try to grab a sample of his DNA without letting on that they were onto him. 
If they seized something he had discarded in public, it would not be a violation of his right to privacy, as has been upheld by a number of courts. But they had multiple failed attempts before they succeeded. Two marijuana pipes they swiped from Diaz on two separate occasions failed to yield sufficient DNA for comparison because they contained mixed samples. Then, officers pulled him over at a staged traffic stop and cited him for a traffic infraction, failure to use a turn signal, handing him a pen to use to sign the paperwork. Once he signed the citation and handed back the pen, they tested it. But the pen was a bust, too. Investigators went to all sorts of lengths to obtain a sample. They surveilled the various addresses they knew he sometimes stayed at. They pretended to be homeless persons to watch him as he passed by. They planted undercover female officers for him to chat with at apartment complexes he frequented. They sent fake customers to him to get estimates for his side job as a tattoo artist. They followed him to restaurants. They observed him at his masonry job and so on. It was a very impressive operation, but it failed to pay off until finally they got lucky. On April 22, 2016, detectives staked out Diaz and tailed him as he went to work as a cinder block installer at a West Valley City construction site. Detectives holed up in a vacant apartment that faced the wall that he was building that day. They were able to scoop up a pair of work gloves he left under a tree during his lunch break. Then, at the end of the day, they watched him consume a Rockstar energy drink and discard the can as he got into his work truck. He left it on the ground because apparently it's too much trouble to use an appropriate trash receptacle or, God forbid, recycle the can. As soon as he drove off, detectives grabbed it. These items were sent to the state crime lab for DNA testing, and this time they were able to isolate a profile from the gloves and the can. The crime lab compared it to the profile of Evelyn's killer, and bingo, it was a match. The arrest affidavit for Diaz lays out that, quote, the DNA profile from the can matched the unknown DNA profile found on the hammer. And since police believed Diaz used the hammer to kill Evelyn while he was burglarizing her home, they had what they needed to make an arrest. Investigators took pains to point out that Diaz's DNA was the only one they tested. In other words, they were careful not to grab the DNA of any other family members. Officials were very conscious of the privacy rights issues involving members of the suspect's family. And in the end, they didn't need it. They had their match. According to Chief Deputy Tuella County Attorney Gary Searle, Evelyn's was actually the first case in the state of Utah in which familial DNA was used successfully to generate a suspect profile leading to an arrest. Once the DNA match was confirmed, detectives obtained a warrant for Diaz's arrest and started watching him. On the morning of May 6th, officers from the Tuella PD West Valley PD, and the Regional Unified Police Department watched Diaz and a buddy leave Diaz's residence at 7.10 a.m. and drive to Davis Food and Drug at 3765 South Parkway Boulevard in West Valley City. The two men went inside and bought some things and emerged at 7.30. Officers still didn't want to tip Diaz off to what he was suspected of, lest things turn violent or he attempt to flee. So, none of the law enforcement personnel was wearing anything that identified him as affiliated with Tuella PD. A West Valley City officer named Sergeant Britton stopped Diaz and his friend and told them that they matched the description of a couple of suspects they were looking for and asked them for ID. At this point, Tuella PD Sergeant Chris Thompson walked up and asked them their names. Body camera footage from a hidden camera worn by Detective Thompson is available online. Diaz's friend identified himself, and then Diaz gave his own name. It was surprising to me how short he seemed in stature compared to his friend and the police officers. Diaz was starting to look a little nervous. He was clutching a flimsy white plastic bag, the kind you get at the dollar store and other retail establishments. Thompson said, Rogelio, we'd like to talk with you for a little bit, so we're going to have to ask you to come with us. Thompson tells Diaz that they'd like to ask him some questions on a case they were working on, and since he was going to be getting in the patrol car, cuffed his hands behind his back and checked in for weapons. Diaz was cooperative with all of this. He asked, What's going on? What are you questioning me about? The sergeant responds that they'll get into that in a little bit. They're going to take him to the office to talk with him for a minute. When asked what kind of work he was doing in the area, he answers, Construction. He says that he works in foundations, but it's not ideal because he is too short and has a bad back after beating cancer. He stands there for several minutes with no one talking as they question and release his buddy and call for a transport vehicle with a cage. When he was placed into the police car, he still didn't know that the cops knew about Evelyn.
It must be a dreadful realization that one minute you were shopping with your buddy for Snickers bars and sodas, the next minute you were in police custody for something you did years earlier that you thought no one knew about, that you will never likely see the outside world again, and that you just spent your last few minutes of freedom wandering the aisles at Davis Food and Drug. Diaz was taken to the Unified Police Department and questioning began. At the press conference, Chief Kirby stated that investigators were convinced that Diaz had murdered Evelyn in a burglary gone wrong. He had acted alone and had panicked afterwards, using the victim's car to flee the area. Kirby said, as troubling as this case is, it's very, very satisfying to the officers to reach this point. Familial searching had accomplished in months what good old-fashioned detective work was not able to do in five years. So what do we know about Rogelio Diaz Jr.? He was born on December 16, 1992, in the U.S. to Mexican parents Rogelio Sr. and Maria Diaz. His father and brothers were deported to Mexico after they all served time in Utah prisons for various felonies. But because he is a U.S. citizen, Diaz legally stayed in Utah. As an aside, investigators noted that it was believed that Rogelio Sr. and Jay Diaz had illicitly returned to the U.S. Rogelio Jr. said he had completed school through the 10th grade. When he was arrested, he was living at 2721 West 3835 South in West Valley City. Before that, he had lived with a sister in Tuella for a few months. Diaz did not have a steady job. He moonlighted as a tattoo artist, had worked at places like Panda Express and Apollo Burger, and often worked day jobs in the construction industry, bouncing around among employers and jobs. Diaz had an arrest record in Utah, but not for any violent crimes. He was arrested in 2011 for misdemeanor possession of drug paraphernalia, underage alcohol consumption, and failure to respond to a police officer's command. What happened was, he was sitting in a car in a Utah park smoking pot with two other guys. Officers from the Unified Police Department pulled up, and Diaz, sitting in the driver's seat, jumped out and ran. Never a good idea, but this happened on October 11, 2011, literally just days after he had killed Evelyn so no doubt he panicked at the sight of the police. Diaz pled guilty to an amended charge of attempted failure to stop at the command of a police officer in exchange for the dismissal of the drug-related charges. He was given parole, but ended up being sentenced to 150 days in jail after he violated that. He was also convicted of theft in 2012. In neither of these cases was Diaz's DNA entered into the database because the arrests preceded the Utah law mandating DNA samples for arrestees, and he was not convicted of felonies in either case. Diaz was accused of one violent crime, a sexual assault, by a woman who did not want to press charges. She told police that in September 2015, her husband had allowed his buddy, Rogelio Diaz Jr., to stay in their home. And one night, when her husband was out of town on his truck route, Diaz drugged her and sexually assaulted her. He also verbally abused her and said, quote, Nobody will believe you. It will be just like that last lady that accused me of this. He told her he would hurt her if she called the police. Diaz was never charged in this case, so again, his DNA was never placed into the system. Chief Deputy Tuella County Attorney Gary Searle described Diaz as a wannabe gang member, someone who was enamored of the gang lifestyle but didn't quite cut it as a gang member himself. In fact, the victim in the non-prosecuted sexual assault case said she was afraid of Diaz because of his affiliation with the Serenos 13 gang. Sergeant Thompson told me that while they know that Diaz had very strong connections to this Serenos 13 gang, they could not confirm whether he was an actual member. He apparently had posts all over his Facebook professing his affiliation with the gang. In fact, in 2012, when he was picked up, along with a bunch of other guys, after a Serenos 13-related shooting at a Salt Lake City party, he posted the following on August 9, 2012. Quote, Ha, lame ass. Detectives trying to call me a murderer. Where's the evidence? IXD. Sergeant Thompson believes he posted this in connection with being questioned in the shooting, trying to make himself look like a big man. Tuella PD officer Lonnie Collings described Diaz on Nancy Grace as having little man syndrome, antagonistic and a little aggressive. According to Collings, Diaz claims he's 5 feet tall, but state records list him at 4'11". And this little big man syndrome is evident in the reports about Diaz's police interviews after his arrest. Remember the incident I related earlier where he jumped out of a parked car and ran away from some police officers soon after Evelyn's murder? 
Well, when he related that story to detectives, he blew it up to he was being pursued in a high-speed chase. He floored it and ended up flipping his car. By the way, when Diaz was arrested, he had a fiancé and kids with at least two different women. When investigators sat down at the station to talk to Diaz, he remained calm, never freaked out. After they read him his rights, Detective Thompson and Sergeant Collings established that he had some connections in Tuella, having actually lived there for some time until his sister kicked him out, but that he had never done any work in individual homes. They wanted to be sure that he didn't have any legitimate reason that his DNA could have been on the hammer at Evelyn's house or in her car. They talked over his work history and his personal life. Then they pulled out some pictures of Evelyn. Detective said, have you ever met her? And Diaz shook his head no and asked her name. Evelyn, they told him. Then Detective Thompson said, is there any reason your DNA would be in her home? Diaz responded, no, why would it be in her home? That's what we're asking, they tell him. Diaz said, I never had no DNA taken. How would you guys say you have my DNA? And the cop says, we have your DNA. So you guys have my DNA in the home? Yes. My skin cells? Yes. I would say you guys are wrong because I was never in that home. He said he had never given a DNA sample either, so they could not have his DNA. He also denied ever being in Evelyn's vehicle. When asked straight up whether he had killed or hurt Evelyn Derricott, he said no. And Evelyn's daughters, when shown a picture of Diaz, said they did not believe their mother knew him. But Diaz did admit to one, albeit small, connection with Evelyn. He said he had bought a used car from someone who lived across the street from her, a friend of his sister's. This was in August of 2011. And one time he was visiting this house with his sister and he saw this older woman, he pointed to the photo of Evelyn, carrying groceries into her house. He asked her if she needed help and she said no. He never spoke with her after that, he said. But Diaz's sister told Detective Thompson that she heard from her friend across the street from Evelyn's that the older woman had hired Diaz to mow her lawn a few times, although he denied this when asked. It seems likely that seeing that Evelyn was older and knowing that she lived alone, the seed was planted in his head that she would be an easy person to rob. Or perhaps he wanted to kill someone to prove his toughness for the gang he admired and Evelyn was a very easy target. So as you can hear, Diaz maintained his composure under pressure. He didn't crumble when faced with the evidence, and he certainly didn't confess. When they told him that they had his DNA in the house, he pretty much clammed up. He was going to put up a fight. When detectives left the room, leaving him alone, the cameras caught him rubbing his face with his hands and putting his head down on the table. He might not have showed it, but he knew they had him. A DNA test conducted pursuant to a search warrant for a buckle swab would confirm it. Gary Searle, the assistant DA, said in a later interview that Diaz targeted Evelyn. Searle believes that Diaz watched Evelyn, knew she lived alone, knew she was elderly, knew her comings and goings, and went there to burglarize the home. He recognized she was one of the few targets he could physically overcome if necessary. Since Diaz admitted to having talked to Evelyn when he asked her if she needed help with her groceries, it's likely he panicked when she saw him since she could identify him from the neighborhood. He grabbed the closest implement and killed her so she could not identify him. On May 9, 2016, criminal charges were filed against 23-year-old Rogelio Diaz Jr. in Tuella County's 3rd District Court. An information specified that Diaz had murdered Evelyn in her home on October 7, 2011, a first-degree felony. It also alleged that he committed first-degree felony aggravated burglary, which caused bodily injury to another person with a dangerous weapon, and second-degree felony theft for stealing the victim's car. A May 11th hearing set bail for Diaz at $5 million. While he sat in jail awaiting trial, detectives listened to Diaz's phone calls with his fiancée. They heard him instructing her to cut something up and get rid of a gun. Diaz's sister, meanwhile, told detectives she did not believe that her brother killed Evelyn. If he had, she said he would have taken off to Mexico, where they had many relatives, rather than sticking around the area. Diaz's fiancée echoed this sentiment. She said that he had stayed out of trouble for five years and was working to support her and their child. Clearly, Diaz's family refused to believe the DNA evidence. There was a lot of back and forth between the prosecution and Diaz's defense attorneys in preparation for trial. A preliminary hearing was held in October 2016 to determine whether there was probable cause to proceed with the trial. At the hearing, Sergeant Chris Thompson testified as to the investigation and the evidence gathered implicating Diaz. Utah State Crime Lab Forensic Technician Rebecca Kay testified about the DNA testing. And at this hearing, we found out a lot of information that had not been released before. 
Sergeant Thompson was the first detective on the scene at Evelyn's split-level home after Officer McKinnon and Sergeant White responded to her friend Lori's call and found Evelyn deceased. Thompson found Evelyn lying on her side, face down on the short staircase leading to the upper floor. Her head, covered with the sweatshirt's hood, was pointing up toward the landing. Her right leg was bent at the knee with her right foot touching the left wall. Her left leg crossed her right leg with her left foot facing the door. Evelyn was clad in a green hooded sweatshirt that had holes in it from something sharp. Officers had to pull down the blood-soaked hood to observe the trauma and matted blood and hair on the elderly woman's head. They weren't 100% certain that she hadn't just fallen and hit her head until they found the hammer. The soaked hood had absorbed much of the blood and kept it from spattering as it usually would with blows to the head. Despite this, there was blood on the wall above her left hand and it had dripped down the wall toward her head. As we know, a blood-covered claw hammer was found on the floor at the top of the stairs. Diaz's attorney, Edward Brass, was permitted to cross-examine the state's witnesses at the hearing. He tried to poke holes in the way Diaz's rock star can and the work gloves were collected, and he queried Sergeant Thompson about fingerprints found in Evelyn's house that did not belong to her or Diaz. But the evidence against Diaz was convincing, and Judge Robert Adkins found that there was probable cause to bind Diaz over for trial. At the subsequent arraignment, the defendant pleaded not guilty. Initially, the trial was to take place over four days beginning May 31, 2017, but it kept getting delayed as Diaz's attorney sought additional discovery, additional DNA testing, expert witnesses, and so on. Next, the trial was scheduled for January 2018. This was put off again at the request of defense counsel as further DNA-related matters were being explored and defense experts retained. This went on and on until December 2019. The trial was scheduled to commence on a Monday morning. On Friday afternoon, with the start of the trial less than 72 hours away, District Attorney Searle got notice from Diaz's attorney of a development. Diaz was going to take a plea. In the end, Diaz pleaded guilty to the charges laid out in the amended information dated December 16, 2019. The murder date was revised to October 5th, and the charges Diaz agreed to plead guilty to were downgraded to first-degree felony aggravated burglary and second-degree felony manslaughter. Here is the statement that Diaz signed. On or about October 5, 2011, I entered the home of Evelyn Derricott unauthorized and without permission. I entered the home to commit a theft. While in the home, I encountered Ms. Derricott. When I encountered Ms. Derricott, I picked up a hammer, pulled Ms. Derricott's sweatshirt hoodie over her head, and struck her in the head no less than 10 times with the hammer. These injuries were fatal to Ms. Derricott, and by inflicting the injuries, I caused her death. It was basically a form statement, a fill-in-the-blank with what you did to whom and when. Sticking to the script, Diaz offered no reason and gave no apology. The plea agreement Diaz signed acknowledged that his sentence would be five years to life in the Utah State Prison. The judge handed down Diaz's sentence, five years to life for the first-degree felony aggravated burglary and one to 15 years for the second-degree manslaughter. The terms were to run consecutively. Now, you're probably thinking, wait, what, five years, 15 years, is this guy going to get out? You aren't alone. Here is an excerpt from an article in the Tuella Transfer Bulletin, quote, After the sentence was pronounced, Tuella County Chief Deputy Attorney Gary Searle assured the public that Diaz would serve much more than the minimum five years the sentence called for. He told the media, quote, We know, based on cases like this, that he'll do somewhere between 25 and 30 years. We felt, in consultation with law enforcement and Derricott's daughters, it removes all of the variables of a trial, a jury, and an appeal. To her family, who are very much the victims of this, there's now a finality to the case. Evelyn's daughters said that as much as they wanted Diaz to have to sit through a trial, they were not sure that they could sit through it and listen to all the details of what he did to their mother. Sergeant Thompson told the transfer bulletin, quote, After Diaz was finally adjudicated, it felt good knowing that Derricott's daughters would have that knowledge that he will be locked up for a long time. It has weighed on their minds for so long. Several members of the Tuella Police Force received the Meritorious Service Award for their work on this case. The award recipients included Sergeant Lonnie Collings and Detectives James May, Jason Spencer, Chris Thompson, Ian Borders, and Ryan Warner. 
After five years, Evelyn Derricott's case is finally closed thanks to familial DNA searching. And if you are one of the bad guys, they are coming for you. Thanks to Sergeant Chris Thompson of the Tuella PD for speaking with me about this case. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, and at dnaidpodcast on Facebook. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons. And now I'd like to play for you a clip of a podcast I think you'll really enjoy called Crime and Crime Again. Hi, I'm Chelsea, the host of Crime and Crime Again. On my podcast, I cover lesser-known true crime cases. I tell the stories that you may not have heard before. Join me in bringing light to the stories of the missing and murdered and being a voice when their own has been silenced. You can find Crime and Crime again anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts.